you know, obviously the coronavirus uh, pandemic has been the talk of everything, not just in the, the sports world, but obviously in the real world. And uh, Mike and I sometimes go off on tangents about stuff. And so I figured it would be a good time to get uh, an informed opinion on, on, on cases like this. And uh, uh, we, I asked my wife, uh, who worked with uh, Dr. Uh, Jill Giordano Farmer. Um, yes. The assistant professor of neurology, uh, the director of the Parkinson's Disease Center at Global Neuro- Neuroscience Institute, has clinical practices in Lawrenceville and Philadelphia and who also has her Master of Public Health uh, from Robert Wood Johnson School of Public Health. So, uh, Dr. Farmer, I appreciate you joining Mike and I. Sure, no problem. Um, I guess for doctors right now, what what is this situation like when you see what's going on, not just in New York, but in every area in the country at this point? Sure, it puts everyone on alert. Um, but there's definitely two pools of physicians that are involved. And there's those that are on the front lines, the ones that are in the emergency rooms and the hospital floors and the ICU units. And then there's the other physicians that are trying to do their best to keep their practices afloat by pivoting and transitioning over to telemedicine um, and ways that they can care for their patients remotely. So it's been an upheaval in both senses, but as far as those that are bearing an even more significant risk and brunt, it's definitely the doctors that are in the hospital. Mike, you want to go? Yeah. I'm just wondering, because Kevin and I have talked about this a couple of times. If we had taken you back a month mm-hmm. and said we would be where we're at now and facing what we may be facing in the next month mm-hmm. or so, would you have looked at me and said you're crazy or did a doctor kind of see this? kind of coming so i can only talk about me and in my role as a neurologist i did not and that's perfectly honest one of the Mm -hmm. other things that i do is i'm an administrator for a national women's neurology group and we were set to have our conference last week in march um in uh florida bonita springs florida and when the restriction and travel bans were starting to go into place for different academic institutions, everybody who I work with through this women's neurology group were thinking, this seems so out of proportion to a response that we need for a virus that doesn't even seem mm-hmm. to be having a huge impact here just yet. We did make the decision, um, along with you know countless of other institutions, to cancel our conference, and we did. But the gravity and the severity of the situation really, I would say, wasn't apparent except for a couple of weeks ago, two to three weeks ago, compared to where we were five or six weeks ago. So as a medical professional, I was woefully naive myself as to what the impact would be. And then when you take that to people like us, Mm -hmm. you know, we're just who aren't medical people. It's amazing how in the span of like a week we went from thinking, oh, we're, we don't know what this means, right. to like, oh, my God. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is our frame of reference is so different for other, you know, large-scale population infections. And, I mean, everybody equates it to the flu, and this is definitely not the flu. Um, and this is a, a fibrotic pneumonia that attacks the respiratory system like other um, airborne and uh, tactilely spread uh, uh, 
uh, aerosol type infections that affect the respiratory system um, in the past that, you know, SARS and whatnot. This is a variation of that. And it wasn't appreciated because everybody was kind of thinking in their frame of reference, like, oh, this is just a bad flu. This is just a bad flu. And, and it's definitely not. And the, the, idea behind social distancing and flattening the curve isn't to prevent the number of infections per se, it's to prevent the rate at which the infections present. So that's where we're falling into the um, the seriously grave situation that we're in right now. It's not, we're, we're expected to have a large number of people infected, right. but the speed with which they are decompensating and presenting, that's what's putting the strain on the healthcare system. When you see pictures out of Florida of Mm -hmm. spring breakers on a beach, uh, kids playing basketball, obviously Philadelphia just Mm -hmm. removed all their basketball uh, nets this uh, today on Tuesday Mm -hmm. as we're talking. Um, Were you surprised? I guess Given the numbers and everything, are you surprised that you're still seeing these um, this amount of, of re- resistance to social distancing? I am and I'm not because I have to think about where I was six weeks ago. Um, I was, un- until you are in the that rate of rise that we're in now on all the curves that you see that are everywhere, um, you know, on social media and in the news and all of that, until you hit that quick steep of rate of rise of the uh, presentations, everyone's like, oh, well, it's really bad over there, but it's still not so bad over here. And it, whether people are just eternally optimistic to think that it's not going to happen to them or they are feigning ignorance or whatever it might be, you kind of just have to be in the thick of it in order to appreciate the gravity of the situation. And I think we are doing better in the sense that not everybody is ignoring it. I think that they're, while not everybody is necessarily following it as strictly as they would like people to in the places that are not as impacted as of yet, there are still people in those places that are following the uh, recommendations and the instructions for social distancing that might not otherwise have. So even that little bit is going to have an impact. The, the one the one thing that you mentioned, it's not the flu. And today was the first time we heard on Tuesday was the first time we heard President Trump saying it's not the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, he was big in, on the flu analogy. And the comparison's been made to 1918, which was the Spanish mm-hmm. flu and everything. It, from what you studied, I guess, during your pup, your you know, your master's with public health. Mm-hmm. What, like, is there any comparison between the reaction maybe then to the reaction now on 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 that? I I don't know know if there is necessarily a comparison. I I don't think that looking back at the numbers from what we know historically for the Spanish flu with the range of deaths from. 17 million to 50 million or the range of infected of 500 million um, where I don't know if we'll hit numbers that high simply because we do have better medicines and we do have better communication, better, better communication and better, um, you know, uh, uh, public health initiatives and things like that. I think these, what can be gleaned from that is lessons learned. Um, and there was a story that I had recently heard between uh, during the time of the Spanish flu, that epidemic that hit, that involved Philadelphia, and I believe it was St. Louis. And at the time, St. Louis went on a complete lockdown, kind of what we're doing now with mm-hmm. really strictly enforcing the social distancing. And Philadelphia held a parade. Um, and then a week 
or two later, after Philadelphia held the parade, they were at max capacity in all of their hospital systems. So I think those are the lessons to be learned. Um, thankfully, I don't think that we would have the same type of death toll and infection numbers that you saw then. Uh, but it's still going to be a lot. Well, and when you so, when you hear, sorry, Mike, uh, I'll let you. That's all right. But when you hear Dr. Fauci today say one hundred thousand to two hundred thousand, yeah. Um, and the chart comes out that if you did not have the social distancing, it could have been anywhere between a million to two point two yep. million. Mm-hmm. Those are like mind blowing numbers, even a hundred thousand. Yep. I mean, if you. There's and there is a there's a bunch of trackers. There's a tracker through Johns Hopkins. There's a tracker through Worldometer. Um, and the latest numbers out of New York itself are at seventy five thousand, and that's just New York. So seventy five thousand infected, not seventy five thousand oh, dead. Yeah. No, no, no. Talking, talking the death 75, rate. Seventy five thousand infected. Yeah, and um, so it is just the, the numbers are mind blowing, and that is I that people keep saying that you're not going to know the the impact of your social distancing if it seems like it's not as bad as it could have potentially been with the predictions and the rates. And that's true. Um, And there's going to be a lot of, you know, Monday morning look back to say, well, did we, we, were we out of proportion to our response? Did we, did we have to be as, as uh, stringent about things as we were? And you're just going to have to take the expert's word for it. Mike. So, so, doctor, um, I go out this morning in the six, they have the 60 and older uh, times to go into supermarkets. So I, I mm-hmm. go out, I'm doing my thing. And I notice a lot of people had the face masks on, mm-hmm. gloves, um, which I didn't. But, mm-hmm. I, you know, I kept my distance. And now they're kind of coming out and saying that maybe the masks might actually work. <clears throat> of course, we can't get them. But yeah. in lieu of that, AA does that work? But if I took like a scarf or something. Mm-hmm. and maybe put that around my face or, or did steps like that aside from washing my hands like 20 times, would that right. help? So there, I will say that that is definitely an evolving discussion um, because even with the World Health Organization and the CDC coming out with su- suggestions that maybe everybody wearing masks might be beneficial versus is there really um, some evidence behind that? The where it stands now is a mask for an individual, not in a high risk situation, um, not somebody that they who is otherwise healthy. If they themselves don't have symptoms, if you have symptoms and you need to go out, then by all means, you need to wear the mask. But Mm -hmm. if you're not experiencing symptoms or anything like that, the idea is that it can prevent the spread of any droplets or aerosol things that you might have if you cough, if you don't know if you're. If, if you're asymptomatically affected. Um, and because they, you have to be in somewhat of a proximity for that to have an impact um, and spread from person to person for aerosolization, that's why they were saying, well, if there's, that's why the six feet is, rule is, was discussed and, and why if you're not in a very heavily populated situation, that might not necessarily be necessary. But now that they're looking, again, at that rate of rise of infection um, where people are, you know, the number of new cases presenting every day is also a function of more testing that's available, but it's also a function of more people that are showing symptoms Mm -hmm. that as a precaution, perhaps wearing a mask is a good thing. And for the general public, 
it really just is a barrier. It doesn't have to be a mask. So mm -hmm. the cloth mask or the bandana, like the CDC said, or something like that, mm -hmm. um, is for the person just running out to the grocery store, maybe overkill, maybe not, but it wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the medical professional, those are not to the standard that helps prevent the spread of infection for um, aerosolized particles and things well, like that. And, and Mike and I are both diabetic, so we would be mm -hmm. considered an You'd be considered risk. immunocompromised, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. So obviously any caution you have, right? It's better, it. to, it's better to take it as opposed to, like I went to the supermarket right. and wore gloves and, yeah. and, the, and a best made mask. <laughs> but then what ha Kevin, yeah. what happens to your gloves though? Like you have to throw those gloves You out. throw it out right away. No, like the, the rubber gloves. I, we have yeah. rubber gloves around the house here. No, and that, that's exactly right. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's not that simply wearing gloves is not the issue. Um, if you wear the gloves, if you go to the supermarket, you don't wear the gloves in your car. You put the gloves on before you touch the handle of the supermarket mm -hmm. cart. And then as soon as you are done in the supermarket, you take those gloves out and you throw them away. You don't wear those gloves back to right. your car. Right. Yeah. Or, or, or my wife has given me like uh, alcohol to spray our yes. steering wheel and everything mm -hmm. for along those right. lines, doctor, like, and I, and I, when I go into the store, the first thing I'm doing is that they have the disinfectant there. Mm -hmm. they, my, my wife is preaching that to me. <laughs> when you bring the stuff home, the goods that you bought, mm -hmm. do you have, should you wipe the boxes off? Should you, uh, or is that overkill? You know? Overkill. So, I mean, I honestly cannot have any expert opinion on this whatsoever. Yeah. Um, okay. I would, I, for my own practices, I am, you know, not really taking any other extra precaution than okay. to keep things in a single place to um, wipe stuff down if I particularly think that they're dirty or they're leaking or something like that, but not mm -hmm. because I am leaving stuff out on the porch for 72 hours or right. waiting hours before I pull, bring in the mail. I But that, like I said, is just my own personal approach to it. We we're talking to Dr. Jill Giordano farmer, uh, from the global neuroscience Institute also has her master in public health. We know her. And we, she has some answers to some of the questions we have. This is treading on political. So I'm not going to go too deep. Into Don't it. go there, Kevin. <laughs> the response. No, but the response of governments and the <laughs> response on ventilators, supplies, all that. Has it been adequate? In your in your opinion, has it been adequate? And is there any way this could have been foreseen, as you mentioned, six weeks ago? You're just going to try and get her in trouble. I'm, I'm not trying, but no. it's, it's an legitimate, I think it's an, an obvious question. I, I think that everybody would have liked to have had something a little bit better prepared in terms of numbers. But again, thinking of myself six weeks ago, I would not have foreseen the thrust at which this has increased so significantly and it's increased so significantly in patches of the country so you're talking about the entirety of the united states which is huge and i only had to worry myself about a conference of about 200 people that i had to right. that i had to be logistically responsible for and that was a nightmare so i can't even imagine the type of planning and predictions and models that had to be looked at and you have to make that call and with testing and, and with testing and you have to make like the inconvenience of uh of an entire country for something that you don't know if it's going to 
mount to be as significant as they as you might think. So I really don't know how in the national public health sectors you can make those calls. Right. But the thing is, they're responsive now. Right. And they are catching up and they are putting in the efforts to get the new to get the ventilators and the respirators and the masks and everything like that. Like I said, hindsight, everybody's like, oh, it should be done. But you do what you can with the information that you have available. In, in hindsight, though, also, then this goes to another point of it. They reveal holes in the healthcare system um, where, look, some hospitals, are closed, you know, you worked across the street from Hahnemann. I mean, mm-hmm. the Hahnemann situation is obviously difficult. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there's been some holes that have been opened up in this, hasn't there? There have been. And like I said, if there can be any silver lining to this, it's that it has brought those breakdowns to the surface. And hopefully it is something that, can now, once the immediacy of the epidemic is brought under control, can be focused on to say, look, we, we, this presented to us, it wasn't a hypothetical situation, and this is where we failed, and this is how we have to make it better. Case in point, the telemedicine. Mm-hmm. Telemedicine is something that we've had the, the capacity to do, technologically speaking, for decades. Um, and the big holdup, a lot of it had to do around payers. And whether or not you would get reimbursed for these type of visits. And Mm -hmm. then when they made, again, the government's correct response to sort of waive all barriers to the access of telemedicine was an excellent one. And that might be um, a positive that comes out of this in that it will allow this type of access to homebound patients or patients that have difficulty um, with transportation to get out to doctor's offices to be able to be seen by their doctors, by a specialist, um, and likewise then have the specialist be compensated appropriately for their time. Mike? Doctor, this this thing is so fluid, obviously. Mm-hmm. For people, it could change tomorrow or next yes. week. Or, mm-hmm. But where do we in general, because we know it's going to get worse before it gets better, mm-hmm. where do we go from here? And can people, like, see not the end of the, the, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, but a, a period within a reasonable, maybe a two months or two and a half, mm-hmm. where we might be at least far enough out of this that we can get back to a semi-normal existence. Not that our lives will probably ever be the same. Sure. No, I mean, I think it's too early to make any predictions about return to normalcy, but like I tell a patient that had a stroke and is recovering and they want to know how quickly they're going to get back to their normal level of function. I say, well, look to see the trend of what you've done now. Like, have you started to gain movement of that arm or that leg? And has that been on an upward, um, the trending in the right direction and that you're gaining a little bit more each time? And how quickly have you been able to get that return of function back? If, if it's taken four weeks, if it's taken six weeks, if it's taken eight weeks, and you can expect that you're going to continue on that positive trend for about the same amount of time. And the same thing I think we can do now that people are more appreciative of looking at the models of the areas of the world that have been affected by this before us, we can look to see how long it took them to sort of come through that bell curve back to somewhat of normalcy. And that is going to be our best as our best approach to predicting what it's going to be like for us, because there are parts of the country that are not as affected as New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania at the moment. So they have to catch up and then we have to sort of wait out their, their bell curve too. So right. I've been going to take some time. I've been warned by my wife. You're not a sports fan. So maybe this is a wrong I am question. Not. To ask. Okay. I really am not. <laughs> okay. Um, 
Major League Baseball is looking now at June. Um, perhaps, you know, the NHL and the NBA are looking at p- potentially playing in July and August, which is way beyond their normal season. And the NFL is looking at starting on time in September. Mm-hmm. Do you see, I know you're saying it's too early to predict, but those seem like ambitious totals with the numbers that are being thrown around right now on April 1st. I, I, I think so too. I mean, if it, I think the ultimate of all sports is the Olympics and that's been postponed for a year. Right. So I think anything that's going to gather tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people into one location is really going to have to be thought about quite, quite considerably before it's given the green light. And I, I don't think it's bad to kind of have a goal, but mm-hmm. understanding that that is a fluid target and that might get pushed back realistically you, is appropriate. You have a couple kids. Uh, I do. What would you say to kids? There, there's two groups here that I want to ask you about. What would you mm-hmm. say to kids um, who are going through this? And look, it's cool when you're home from school for a week or two. But when you turn on the news and oh, you have our press conferences and everything, there, there's a scary line here mm-hmm. that's being walked. And I think adults are generally nervous and, and, and mm-hmm. apprehensive. How, how do you how do you digest all of this? I think there is it kind of take chunking it. That's the word I'm looking for. Kind of chunking it into manageable amounts of time and manageable amounts of data. So if you are home all day because that is what everybody is at the moment. Mm-hmm. Don't just automatically put the TV on and let it run in the background all day long because that is going to drive you batty because it's an inundation of information. So give yourself specific amounts of time that you're going to allow yourself to either be on social media or listen to the news or something like that because it makes it more manageable and trying to stay in some semblance of a routine um, because routine is equated with normalcy. So even if it's not your getting up to go to getting up, taking a shower, eating breakfast, going to work, get up, take a shower, eat breakfast, and then do your whatever is your substitute for going out to go to work. If you're working from home, like start that as your next part of your normal routine. So it's really trying to feign some sort of normal routine in this otherwise lacks chaos of what it is that we're experiencing right now for the kids at school. It's not, Oh, I'm just going to get to do my uh, e-learning when I feel like it. It's trying to stay on that schedule of school as best you can. I'll do my reading and my math in the morning. I will take a break as if I had gym or recess and like go out in the backyard or take a walk around the block and then come back, eat lunch and do the rest of my stuff. At least that's how we're trying to manage it. And patients (laughs) of mine that have asked the same thing, like, well, what am I supposed to do? I can't go out to my physical therapy. I can't go out and exercise. I try to give them that same idea. Well, make virtual um, exercise part of your routine. There are resources. I can send them links and they can do things um, Mm -hmm. online. Um, And just, again, keeping things as consistent as possible. Cause once you let yourself go to the, Oh, I have all the time in the world. Then you just kind of sink into an abyss of not being very, not feeling very utilitarian and not quite knowing what to do with yourself. Mike, doctor, could you even begin to put into perspective because we see it almost every night now, or the job that these people who are on the front lines who are putting their lives out there for us, mm-hmm. And we see it, doctors, for you know, yep. nurses, and and they got to go through. You know, 
they look like they're at the end of their rope. So Seriously. We got like six, eight, ten weeks, who knows? Right. Of this to go on. Can, can we even begin to put this into perspective, what they're doing? No, I mean, it is as being part of that second group of docs that has the luxury of being able to kind of continue my practice as best I can remotely and with telemedicine, I, I feel like I should not even be considered in the same category because my, my response to this and the risk that I have to assume is, is nothing compared to what they're doing. So every doctor has to go through, um, in their training, a one year, the first year of their residency or the year before their residency, depending on the type of specialty they're going into. And they have to do an intern year. And it is the grueling year that, you know, TV shows have been made out of, um, staying up all night, having to take care of patients on an urgent, emergent basis, not knowing what you're doing and being put into these positions where you are the you are the person that has to be responsible for the life of someone else and you feel completely inadequate to do so. Um, I can only imagine that they must be on a continual loop of being in that same intensity of an intern year over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Cause they're like and angels, right? It is absolutely. I mean, they really are. And it, it's something that is, it really is almost, superhuman to think that this is what they have to do on shifts on end. And it's something that I am in awe of the level of dedication and professionalism um, that all of the people on that team in the hospital, from the doctors to the nurses, to the respiratory techs, to the janitorial staff, to everybody that's there is it's something that is otherworldly at the moment. And that's why it's so important. I think for everybody, look, these people have yep. done amazing things. But it's, amazing things. But it's so important then for people like us to not make their jobs more difficult. Yep, That's why exactly. we've been saying the stay yep. at home. Uh, mm-hmm. my, my, look, it's inconvenient. Uh, you know, it, yep. it, it, it drives everybody crazy. It's going to mm-hmm. tax a couple marriages along the way. <laughs> yeah. But it, it's something that has to be done for the greater good. And so uh, Absolutely. If, if you're listening to yep. this, please stay at home and uh, doc, Dr. Farmer, I appreciate you joining us. Uh, I know. Thanks so much. I, I, w- I will oh, bring you. you. I'll bring you back during the NFL season, and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll break down, the, <laughs> we'll break down the defenses and everything. But uh, I appreciate. I will be of think, no help what in makes that you conversation. Think she knows what the NFL is? <laughs> <laughs> that I do know. I at least know what that is. But I, I really would not contribute to that conversation in the least. Doctor, I would enjoy talking to you. Doctor Farmer, thanks for joining us, and my wife sends her okay. very best. Yes, please tell her I said hello, too. I miss her. Absolutely. Dr. Jill Giordano Farmer from the Global Neuroscience Center. Dr. Farmer, thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.